City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, Design the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars, now in the 31st year, coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. These seminars offer a rare opportunity to explore with the panelists the realities of working in the theatre. This panel discussion is with stage designers. We will learn about how and why these scenic, costume, lighting, and sound designers became professionals and just how significant and important their contributions are to the success of any theatrical production. I'm Isabel Stevenson, Chairman of the Board of the American Theatre Wing. Now, let me introduce our moderator for the seminar, the distinguished critic, professor, and editor of the Best Plays book series, and a member of the Wing's Advisory Committee, Jeffrey Eric Jenkins. Jeffrey. Thank you. In the beginning of Tennessee Williams' The Glass Menagerie, he talks about illusion and truth, the appearance of illusion and the actual truth. With us today, we have a group of stage magicians, although they don't pull rabbits out of their hats. Uh, maybe sometimes they feel like they pull <laughs> rabbits out of their hats. What they show us is truth wrapped in the pleasant disguise of illusion and the illusions of truth. I want to introduce them to you today. Uh, to my far right is Susie Benzinger, costume designer. Next is Rui Rita, lighting designer. Next is David Meshter, sound designer and composer. To my immediate left is Beverly Emmons, lighting designer. To her immediate left is David Rockwell, who is a scenic designer and an architect. And to his immediate left is Adrienne Lobel, who is a scenic designer and now a producer. So first we'll start with Susie Benzinger. Now Susie, you've gotten the job. You've been hired <laughs> as the designer, as the costume designer. What's, what's the first thing that you do? How do you approach the job? Uh, well, for me, I, I think every designer works differently, but for me, after I read the script, and, and have a very sort of brief chat with the director because I like to know what they're thinking. I read the script again and I actually work in color first. I mean I think a lot of different designers work in form or things but I generally I read the script and I think color. It's the first thing that comes to me naturally is to think color and then I go from there. I mean that's generally my first feeling as I go through color and then I, I go through color with the director and do they see it in their mind like that and sometimes some directors it sort of uh, takes them back a bit because that's not how they're thinking. They're thinking character or something but I generally think color and then once I get that plot down then everything else very easily sort of moves from there from the color for me is really the foundation of, of design. Adrian Lobel, how does that work for you in scenic design? Are you, are you 
interacting with the director? Are you? How do you interact with producers um, as well? By the way, and well, do you tell yourself what to do? Two different subjects. It is a response. You read the script. You listen to the music. Um, I don't think in color. Uh, I think that comes later. Um, I tend to do very rough sketches for a period of time, and overlays. So it's almost like it's almost like being in a fog, and then uh, as you draw, the fog clears, and I get ideas from drawing. It's a very um, it's very rare that I just have a an intellectual concept immediately. It can happen. I mean, every project is different, and sometimes that dream thing happens where you wake up in the morning and you say, "Aha! I know what it's going to be." But usually, you know, even if it's just giving myself time to think, it is a process of layering through the murk, um, and it's in very rough. You know, as you draw more finely, the ideas become clearer. It really is that connected, um, and. Uh, in doing that, it gives a director an in at different phases of my thinking. Um, you can, I can allow a director to see fairly rough sketches and have some impulse, uh, some input at that point. Um, that's how it works for me. Beverly Emmons, you're a lighting designer with more than 30 credits on Broadway. How does that process work for you in the in the design process? How does that process unfold? The visualization of it, I mean, in your own head, in your mind, thinking right. about it? Um, lighting designers, there's, a, there's an idea, especially in the academic world of theater, that, that at the beginning all the designers and the directors arrive in a room and, and commune, uh -huh. and uh, that doesn't happen. <laughs> um, uh, lighting designers are usually hired uh, after the director and the scenic designer have already started to flesh out the, the, the universe of the, of the piece. And, and I read a script very quickly just to say, oh yeah, it's okay, it's one of those, it's got this, it's blah, 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 just so that I know, okay, what sort of what we're dealing with. Because I don't want to imagine it. I want to find my way into their imaginings because they're already way ahead of me. Um, and that the, the life of the play is already in part determined by their explorations uh, and work. Uh, and at that point, it, it triggers off e either a, a very clear kind of image that I couldn't begin to put into words, but I sort of see something. Um, and then there's, the, then there's the back and forth between, well, how might I make that, given the context of time, money, equipment, Real estate, because if the if the scenic designers filled the air with scenery, oh well, that's very nice, but there's you know, but there's no room for my stuff. Yeah. Um, um, in which case, some of those limitations, in fact, set the style. That I, they're not limitations that are bad necessarily. They're just part of the structure to say, well, okay, I mean, uh, uh, that sets the tone of it. So that it's that back and forth. I like your word fog because. I find the moment of sitting down at a drafting table, big bare piece of paper. Sometimes there's a scenic drawing underneath it, but there's a big paper, and 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 you can calm yourself by saying, "Well, mm -hmm. I know one thing. Right. I know where the center line is." Specifics are very important. So put that in the middle of the paper, mm -hmm. right? And then I know the next thing. Once I have the center line, I know the next thing, and that's where the proscenium is inevitably going to sit. Mm -hmm. So you work from what's known to what's unknown. Um, slowly mm -hmm. working out and, and fleshing out the details. Yeah. Yeah. Having some specifics at the beginning so it isn't all just a big mush is very helpful, yeah. like the size of the proscenium. Yeah. Um, I think a very important aspect of designing anything 
and it comes with this sketching process for me, is deciding what the scale of the human being is in the volume of space. So you, if you start with the proscenium opening, if you just keep drawing that box over and over and over again, um, then whatever, whatever decision you make, even if it's rough, starts to be a decision you can pull information so from. So are you working in your mind in front elevation in a way at yeah. the beginning? Yeah, at the yeah. beginning. Yeah. Not always, but that's the general mm -hmm. approach. How do you do it? Um, <laughs> well, fog's a good word. <laughs> um, what really compels me to be involved in theater is the storytelling nature of it. Mm -hmm. And the, the scenic designer's ability to connect emotionally with a story. And in fact, as, a, as an architect, one would assume that sort of our interest in theater would be in static stage pictures. But it's exactly the opposite. It's the fact that theater is this sort of unbelievably powerful communal celebration where everyone comes together and you're telling these stories in real time and things can transition. So um, what we do is tend to, I tend to immerse myself in the project, the period of the project, the storytelling. And I remember uh, on Hairspray with Jack O'Brien, I had a room this big filled with enough sketches for the ring cycle. I mean, that's <laughs> a extraordinary amount of ideas. And we looked at it and <coughs> talked about it. And he kind of looked at everything. And, and Jerry Mitchell was there. And he put his arm around me. And he said, now let's talk about the four things that will make you fall in love with the protagonist the most. Mm -hmm. And let's talk about storytelling and the way the scenic mm -hmm. design extends that. So uh, I guess what I look for is um, a unique point of view in a, a way that the physical environment creates delight, surprise, and moves. It's kind of the movement that is, I, I find, the hardest first thing to work out. Rui Rita, you have uh, a, an ongoing relationship with some directors, and you have an ongoing relationship with the Williamstown Theater Festival, I believe. Isn't that correct? That's correct. Uh, how does that work for you as a, as a designer? How does that allow you to develop your own sort of uh, visual vocabulary? Uh, a way of a palette, you know, a creative palette. Uh, as a, it helps me tremendously as a designer. It helps me even more as a person, I think, because we find ourselves going from show to show, having quick relationships with people, working very intimately with, other, with fellow designers and collaborating, and then you move on to your next project. Um, and there's always that, that sense of, of coming together for a very intense emotional period, and then that that goodbye, which many of us, myself included, tend to make that as quick as possible and out the door. <laughs> um, so it helps me more as a person having those relationships because I know that I'll see these people again. I know that I'll have a sense of uh, that there's a comfort level there. Uh, for instance, on Enchanted April, we've all done uh, many, many, many shows <laughs> together. Um, all of the design team and the director. Um, so when there were issues, as there always are in the uh, in producing any the any production, particularly commercial theater, but um, there's a sort of a automatic sense of comfort, and there's no there's no looking over your back or you know there's ver just a very very. Uh, sort of pleasing. When experience. you say issues, what do you mean issues? Do you mean design, p particular creative issues, or do you mean the personality issues that arise when creators get into a room together? Or yes, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> yeah. uh, pretty much all of that. I mean, it, 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 as with anything 
that we create. There are uh, everyone um, has opinions, and it is a collaboration. That's what we bring to the table, and everyone has um, an agenda. And you know, getting everybody onto the same agenda is part of you know the the joy of the fog, which <laughs> I I love the fog. I know that we. Fog is uh, this seminar could be nicknamed the fog because <laughs> the resonant image, <laughs> particularly since I do some of my best thinking in the shower in the morning. Yes, me too. And it's so clear mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, when, when I'm first approaching the show. Yeah. And I think about the style first, and that sort of you know when you don't yeah. need something really in front well, of you when it's all it's up decision here. Decision making process, and I think students are very afraid of that. They think they have to know it all to begin with, right. and uh, they go from A to Z, and it becomes very frustrating. And you just have to. A design process is about learning how you get from A to Z. Right. Uh, you, you can't actually really take any risks, any designers, without trust among the team. That's that's what's interesting about what you said. That you know, so the lighting designer mm -hmm. may be brought in after some decisions are made. Well, if you're not sitting down talking about what, how it's all going to work together, then it's very hard to take any risks. It seems to me. And, and do anything interesting yeah. without a real level of trust yeah. between you everyone. You have to really feel that you can be <coughs> stupid with these right. people. Right. Right. Well, everyone should be able to say what they want. It's right. also what we do collectively <laughs> is a nonverbal process. Hmm. Words give you clues, but visual images give you clues. And I think, again, the academic world is so uh, um, has such a literary and verbal base to it. And what we do is is not verbal. And and. I, I know that one of the things about working with a director again is now we both know what we mean by those words because those ver words will be a vocabulary that will develop between the two of you or the four of you or whatever the team is. Uh, it's that aspect. I, I, I had a director at a production meeting show me the picture of a sand dune. Uh, ripples, sand dune. And, he and he's, we were doing a Twelfth Night. And she, he said, this is, my, this, is, this is it. This is what I want to communicate to you. What is he talking about? <laughs> 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 so, but, but I don't say right away, I don't understand you. Oh my God, no, I would nod wisely, of course. Wonderful <laughs> 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 image, beautiful, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and, and, then, and then wait for a while. Just wait and listen. And sure enough, talking to the scenic designer, I heard him aside talking about all the stuff he wanted on the floor. And I said, oh, he wants to see the ripples in this sand dune. He likes the idea of floor texture. And there was no way he could say that to me. And that's not, he shouldn't feel he has to. Sure. In many cases, the words come afterwards to post-rationalize. Right. <laughs> 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 but I think it is important to, I mean, I think most in my acquaintance, designers are extremely articulate. And uh, I think that we are visual artists, but I think it's very important to be able to put your ideas into words and your concepts into words. It's also a help in decision-making process. Well, we let's shift. I want to shift for just a moment because we're talking a lot about visual images. And we're talking about costumes and color and light <coughs> and scenic ideas. Uh, we have a sound designer with us, which we don't <laughs> often have. Uh, there's a sound designer and a composer, David Mester, who has a, a broad spectrum of work. Uh, most recently on Broadway with the uh, sound design and did you composition for Medea as well? No, well, that, well, the composition of the sound score was uh, by uh, Mel Mercier. Okay, but, but you I were the, the sound, the sound designer. designer for the piece. And you know, this is a, a different kind of element. This plays into the visual imagery. 
it supports the text, mm -hmm. but could you tell us a little bit about how you feel the sound designer weaves into that whole process? Well, it's actually different for every, every uh, production because sound design means different things to different people. Uh, for some people, sound design, um, if, they're expect if they're bringing a sound designer into a project, um, they would want that person to handle all of the aspects of, of the sound, any sound effects, any um, composed music or other kinds of music that would be brought into it. Uh, others see a sound designer as someone who is going to help the actors to be heard and maybe not much more. Um, in the situation with Medea, uh, the, that piece came to me with the sound score already intact and the composer had very specific ideas of how he wanted the sound design to ha or how he wanted his sound score to appear and move in the piece. So he and I sat down with that and discussed the architecture. Also this piece had to tour so we had mm. to discuss not only what would work in the in at the um, the Harvey Theater at BAM where, where we were first working but it also had to be uh, be able to be done on tour in spaces where they were using all rented equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, so he and I sat down for a while, and also with Deborah Warner, the, the director, and uh, kind of mapped out the sounds. She was familiar with his sound score. Uh, I was not so familiar with it yet. But So we sat down and, and discussed the different types of sounds, how they're going to be used, and uh, Mel helped me understand how he was using those sound to support the, what was happening on stage. And then I helped flesh it out as far as what equipment was going to be necessary and where things could be hung and what we could do at the Majestic but couldn't do at the Wilbur in Boston and things like that. Sure. Um, <coughs> well, then, how does it work? You've also worked with um, Ping Chong, uh, Meredith Monk, right? Yes. Merce Cunningham, yep. is that right? Yeah. Several years with Merce Cunningham. Yes. Yeah. So y you've been an integral part of a team. And this sort of goes back to that thing we were talking about a moment ago. Uh, that we often think of as the artistic home, mm -hmm. you know, the, the artistic group that we work with. How has that worked for you, and, and how do you sort of develop a sound design for that kind of work? That's a different sort of yeah. thing than, than yeah. theater, but I think it plays into it. Yeah, well, it's, again, it's, uh, I have to say it's different for every project. Um, for instance, I, was, I started off with the Merce Cunningham Dance Company, and in many ways that spoiled me for my entire career. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, when I first started working with them, I, I had imagined that artists who have been doing the kind of extreme work they had done all their lives, they would have to be these incredibly egotistical, maniacal people that would say that, well, if you don't understand what we're doing, well, that's your problem. But nothing could have been further from the truth. They just do what they do, and if you like it, that's marvelous. And if not, well, we're, we're going to do it tomorrow someplace else anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and that was really my first work in professional sound and theater, and I had total free reign to do anything. Mm. Basically, um, the, uh, the musicians did not want to fight the spaces they were performing in. They wanted to use them, and my job was to put as many channels of sound around the theater as I could. And even for them, the quality of the sound of the speakers was not important, because if one sounded pretty bad, that might be interesting to them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Particularly David Tudor, who used to want to know, he used to want me to hook up the speakers that hadn't been used in seven to <laughs> ten years. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then, say, working with Ping Chong, it's quite, quite different. Ping uh, also is, is very good about inviting the, uh, the designers to, for a lot of input, but he has some very specific ideas about his piece when he brings it into the theater. 
and uh, is open to other ideas. But he has a, a very clear map as to the kinds of things he wants. And as I try to fulfill them, sometimes I think what he's asking for, either I'm not connecting with or I don't think it's right. I'll discuss it with him and he can be very open to things. Other times he'll say, well, that's a good idea, but I want it my, my cue there. I go, okay, fine. <laughs> uh, Susie, I'm looking at your, your, uh, your credits on Broadway and your recent credits on Broadway. You're the costume designer for, I'm sorry, the, uh, the costume designer for Moving Out, and you did Saturday Night Fever, and there was one other that slips out of my mind right this moment that... Uh, Saigon. Miss Saigon, right. It's almost as if you provide the color and imagery for uh, an entire generation, a, a kind of a baby boom generation of costume design. How does that? How does <laughs> I don't know how that ever happen? Never thought about I that. I didn't mean to. No. <laughs> 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 when I was looking at your, when I was looking at your, your credits, it just occurred to me that that there's this sort of through line for, because moving out is very much about you know the the 1960s and 70s played through Billy Joel's music. And Miss Saigon, of course, we know of course, that's right. all about Vietnam. And then Saturday Night Fever was a, a major, important I cultural influence mm -hmm. in the 1970s. But, uh, what I'm interested in, though, are the nuts and bolts as well. You know, how do costumes, how do you have to, what do you have to do when you're designing the costumes, when you're dealing with Saturday Night Fever, in order to get that imagery across? And then what has to be different in moving out, which is just... The, the movement is everywhere, and the, you know, the bodies have to be able to move in, uh, move with the, the costumes. The costumes have to move with the bodies. How does that work, you know, in, in putting that design together? Well, luckily, you know, over the years, I had worked with Theony Aldridge for like eight years, so I, you know, had done a lot of musicals with dance, and I guess that's sort of the through line, probably, yeah. in all those shows, is that the dance was really important, and, the, you know, the movement. And, I, you know, I think with all those shows, basically, the, the dancers have to feel as though they're in character, that they are characters, but they have to be able to dance, but I didn't want the clothes to look like dance clothes. You know, I didn't want that whole feeling, you know, either with it. And they had to tell a story. I mean, the funny thing was, someone said to me the other day about working with Twilight, like, you know, because I was really not very familiar with, I had seen some of her dance concerts, but I wasn't really all that familiar with their style. And they said what it was like to work with her and like what the first meetings were discussing dance. And I said, you know, we never discussed dance, ever. Mm. Never talked about mm. dance once. I mean, we talked about the characters and the story, um, but never once discussed actually what they were doing in the clothes. But after seeing some of her pieces in the past, I knew that everything had to be danceable, that there was no question that everything had to be. So probably the through line with all those shows is that everything had to be. Nick Heitner worked as a uh, very closely uh, with Bobby Avian and making sure that everything in, in Saigon was about movement and sp space and uh, I think all the shows probably have that kind of through line actually you know so I guess my start really is making the dancers feel like they're not in dance costumes that they can do anything they want you know without feeling constricted but yet they still have to tell a story you know because you're sitting in the audience you want to know what the story is about Adrian, you're the uh, current designer for and producer of A Year with Frog and Toad. Mm -hmm. And as I look at some of your credits, I see, you know, a variety of styles that you have used. I mean, there's the sort of the whimsical quality of uh, A Year with Frog and Toad. And uh, it was interesting that you mentioned uh, the how, you know, human beings fit into the picture. It's a very human um, perspective in, in that, the, the human uh, dimension to A Year with Frog and Toad. 
But then when we look at, say, passion, uh, and I guess you collaborated mm -hmm. with Beverly Emmons on that, how does, how does passion, uh, how, do you, how do you sort of shift style like that? There's a very different kind of look about that. Often we find that artists have a kind of, and I used the word earlier, a visual vocabulary. Mm -hmm. I love the, the mm -hmm. term. And how, do you feel that you have that, or do you feel like um, style's a dangerous word, and I don't think any of us would want to feel that we have a style. I think we would all like to feel that we respond to a text or a piece of music uh, in a completely fresh uh, but personal way. Um, I think if you wanted to uh, give my work a definition, it would be that I'm a minimalist, that I don't believe that anything should be on stage that isn't helping to tell the story, even in an abstract way. Um, uh, it's to go back to the uh, the uh, subject of collaborating with people that you trust. It's, it's very important because it does segue into the producing aspect of Frog and Toad. Um, when you have worked with the same group of people uh, many many times, uh, there is this uh, unspoken understanding. Uh, for example, I work I have done so much work with Jim Ingalls, the lighting designer, and when I know that he's designing a piece, it gives me a great leeway to be as minimal as I really want to be. It means I can have one drop that is painted as a translucency with some, with some opacity maybe on the back uh, with translucent dyes and that he will get 45 looks out of it. Uh, and then I don't need 16 drops, I just need that one. Um, and what was wonderful about producing is that uh, I was able to call upon these people that I've worked with so many times. It was really a no-brainer. I mean, I think that that's a big difference between regular producers who say, well, who had the last big hit? Let's hire that person. <laughs> uh, to, to really putting together a group of people to make a show together, a people whose vision uh, you, you understand and who you want to work with. It, it's very, it was very satisfying on, on that level. Um, but I would say, uh, in answer to your question, um, uh, everything is, every show is different. Um, and uh, I, I think there's a danger in sort of sticking to a style. I mean, I did Diary of Anne Frank, too, which is total realism. I've done some super real, did street scene in Houston, sure. movie realism. And then passion is completely abstract. And the dance work I've done for Mark Morris has been, uh, you know, either cartoony or abstract. Or I think that what's important is telling the story, is movement in space, is volume, um, is allowing room for the lighting designer to do their work. Um, what was interesting about Frog and Toad, I thought visually, was how it, it was seemed inspired by the drawings but wasn't slavishly reproducing them. Right. And in doing that, it captured some of the spirit and it kind of clarified what the spirit of the piece is. Uh-huh. Well, that was, a, that was a scary and wonderful process for me. Mm -hmm. uh, because, yes, I, I agree with you. I made a very conscious decision in uh, Frog and Toad not to... I've seen illustrators do set design, and it's never very satisfying for me. It's like you take the drawing and you stick it on stage, and it ends up looking goofy because the line becomes very large and the shape becomes grotesque. So I pulled back from doing that. The illustrations became much more clean and architectural. And it was about scale. You know, here's a, a person and there's a flower this big, so they're instantly tiny. Um, but it, it, it also was about how do you, how do you cu cut up the space with these flat things? You know, Toad's house has a roof and then a, and then a plane behind it. So it isn't just 
it isn't just a flat plane. There's some space for some volume there, uh, and some light to happen. The uh, same thing with all the drops. I really used very kind of 19th century old theater uh, technique. Um, Jeffrey, when you had the show, you, you got the show, when do you all come together? At what point do you all come together in the show? Um, at what point? As, as, as the process age. begins, when do you begin to meet uh, as, as a group? When do mm. you first preview text. usually? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's always hard because everyone's really busy. Well, that's that's a question. That's a question <laughs> yeah. that uh, is of interest to me when we uh, start um, thinking about uh, uh, this this element of of collaboration and how the collaboration process works. You know. Everybody gets together and sort of you say, okay, we just get together and tech. Nobody ever gets together. Right. Yes. Wow. <laughs> but, like Beverly, uh, Beverly Emmons is a lighting designer. Yeah. She sort of has to do her palette, her color yeah. palette, in, in front of a room, room full of people, start mixing it at the same time. And, you know, do you have a little, or do you have a little theater well, where you get no, to no, no, play no, no, those no, games? No, 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 but, but <laughs> there's a couple of meetings where you look there at the plan and section. Sometimes there's a first, uh, a first meeting, at least we see each other at let when they, the first day of rehearsal. But the economics of the thing, I mean, obviously, in order to rehearse the play, the director and the scenic designer have to know what they're doing because they've got to put the tape on the floor, mm -hmm. right? And, so, and the director has to know where the table and chair is because they're going to so forth. What I would like to know isn't known yet, isn't knowable yet. Because I want that moment when the two characters are sitting. One is sitting and one is standing. And this is the most important moment of the play. And I want to make sure that both sides of their faces are lit so that the intensity is going between them. But I don't know where they're going to sit, and neither does the director. So, so the process of the rehearsal of finding the life of the play in the actors and the cast, it hasn't happened yet. And the light plot has to be finished before the first day of rehearsal. So, so um, I'm imagining things that are unknowable yet. And therefore, part of the professionalism is to put enough stuff up there, enough possibilities, a whole palette. I, I call it a palette like a painter has a palette of a bunch of colors. He doesn't know he's going to mix them, right? So he squeezes a little of this, a little of that, a little of that. That's what a light plot is for me. It's, it's a bunch of, of possibilities that you then use as you paint through moment by moment. Lighting designers are really on the hot seat. It's like yeah. someone's yeah, watching you do the rough sketches. Yeah. Yeah. I yes. would never want it's that many people watching <laughs> me do <laughs> the rough sketches. It seems like as technology gets bigger and bigger, too, the plot due date keeps getting earlier and earlier. <laughs> so we have to make these decisions earlier and earlier. Right. You know, it's, it's, it, it's no but longer really possible to wait until the last I would suspect sound minute. is more like what we do, because again, there's no words when the, direc the director says, I want a dog barking outside the door. To take a literal example, I've then seen a director in the middle of tech turn around and say, oh, I think it should be a bigger dog. Right. And also, unfortunately, it seems that that sound is brought in well after too many other decisions are made. Um, right. Speaking uh, of real estate. <laughs> yeah, and speakers. Yeah. Real estate and speakers. <laughs> right. And, right. and uh, I often have to, you know, chase the producers down t to get contacts for the set designer so I can figure right. out, you know, can I get speakers in the battle. set? Right. Because by the time, usually by the time I, I, I meet everybody, 
everything's being constructed and it's like, you want to put a hole in what? You know, no, you <laughs> That's can't. Right. You know? <laughs> <coughs> Whereas if we could have gotten together earlier, you know, some compromises could have been made where everyone could have been happy and I could get speakers in, in the set. So I end up, uh, and often a sound designer isn't brought in until <coughs> way, way later. And then all the monies mm -hmm. have been spent on, on wonderful sets and costumes and yeah. lighting. Much <laughs> 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 on that. <laughs> What's that you say? How much by the pound? Uh, the, the, one of the problems is that the, the better a sound design is, unless it's big and fancy with lots of sound effects, the better it is, the more transparent it is. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I did a um, production of Meredith Monk's um, Atlas. And during, uh, I was actually running the console, and during one of the, the uh, intermissions, uh, two elderly women were passing the console, and one says to the other, oh, this is where all the lighting is done. <laughs> and I, and I, said, uh, I said, excuse me for, for overhearing, but actually this is the sound console. And she said, sound? Do you mean amplification? I said, well, yes. And she was very upset. Well, I didn't hear any amplification. <laughs> and she, they, they, they left. And she right. didn't realize that she had paid me the highest yeah. compliment mm. I could have gotten. <laughs> <laughs> she thought I was just some, you know, a uh, person just y yanking her chain, but you know, I I was very pleased with that. But right. that's <laughs> well, whenever we t whenever we talk about design, uh, technology keeps popping up. We keep uh, there. There's uh, computer assisted design for uh, scenic design. Um, I'm Beverly, I'd like to come back to you again about uh, you know you've had a long career. How does how has the technology changed over the course of your career, and in good ways and bad ways and how has it affected oh, what's been, going on? It's been wonderful. This has been the, the moment of lighting in the past, really the past 50 years. It's, it's leaps and bounds. I, I, uh, I initially worked on Broadway shows when they were still DC current in the theater and they were mm. all manual boards. Um, at the same time, in touring around the country with dance companies, every <coughs> uh, a college auditorium you walked into had a different version of the current electronic, whatever it is. And as designers, we sort of prided ourselves at being able to speak the language of whatever board we suddenly found ourselves dealing with in order to speed <coughs> up the process with the operator. Uh, but then, then there was basically, a, uh, it was an honest competition, and one particular style of console was a clear winner. And it was, and I'm talking about <coughs> the computers that drive the lights, that need a vocabulary, because the best kind of lighting is sometimes done as fast as you can talk with an operator going as, blah, 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 as fast as they can punch the buttons because they're dancing it and you're painting it while they're dancing. Um. And, if, you know, and you're, just, you're just that little bit behind and now I need the back lights up there and now the blue and now this and blah, 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 blah. Record it, go to the next. And that speed um, of console, in the old days a director would say, can we go back? And, and the assistant's job was to figure out what dimmers should have been on so that the guys yeah. can set it back and that would take 10 minutes. Now the director says in a rehearsal, can we go back and do that again? You boom, you're back. Right. So we'd gotten very used to a real stream yeah. of consciousness about yeah. lighting, and that's wonderful. Ah, 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 not so fast. Just as we got all of that nicely done, <laughs> the moving lights <laughs> came in. Thank right. you, Rock and Roll, who had enough money to right. develop these. And with moving lights now, instead of it just being on and off, and you've stuck a color in it physically, mm -hmm. so that's it, and you've aimed it, and that's it. Now it's just on and off. Now every piece of equipment has 10 or 12 attributes that you can suggest. It could be a little over there, could be a little over there, a little bigger, a little smaller, dimmer, brighter, this color, oh, a little mm. more green. I mean, and therefore, the time in, and this can only be done live. Mm. So the time in the theater is sometimes just <coughs> ticking away, and you, you feel, oh, 
I'm almost got mm. it, and there are 50 people standing there mm. at high salary like this, waiting <laughs> for you because everyone's urgent to solve things. And this technology is extraordinary and beautiful, but man, the time it takes. So, I mean, some of the most successful, like uh, Noise Funk that uh, Jules Fisher and Peggy Eisenhower sure. did, which was the f really the big move of the moving lights into the Broadway context. First of all, there are two lighting designers. Jules would do all morning uh, physical work and the afternoon rehearsal. Peggy would come in at five or four or five o'clock. They would take the evening rehearsal together, and then Peggy and the programmer would be up all night. Mm. Mm. They would be programming all night, mm. and they did this for three weeks, mm. three or four weeks. So the the idea of working all night, we got rid of that a long time ago with community <laughs> theater. We don't do that anymore. <laughs> you know. And and now it just the 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 hours. And the uh, economic implication of those hours is, is huge. And the design aesthetic is also uh, a challenge. I, uh, at the Williamstown Theatre Festival, I also um, teach uh, an internship with uh, usually t anywhere from 10 to 20 young lighting designers. And what I find uh, to be their biggest challenge coming out of these schools is that the l many of these uh, schools have all of this equipment, have the moving lights, have so much. And the challenge is getting them to turn things off mm. instead of turning <laughs> things on. I right. mean, it was right. when, you know, uh, years ago, before all of this technology, it was, you know, it was just trying to get the money to put the light where you needed it, you know, to, to get as many lights as you could for the specific moments. Now it's, there are so many lights because they need to be hung very early on. The temptation is to, if, if there's an issue, just turn it on and fill it in, and then you start canceling out your picture. There's so many lights on that it's just completely wiping out your picture. And with young designers, that's what I find right. most of the time you're telling them, no, take things out, take things yeah. out, clear out your vision. Yeah. There's inherently nothing interesting about technology. Right. I mean, the technology is there right. to serve storytelling. Right. And, um, you know, one of the things we find in, in every walk of design, in architecture, and in, in, in thinking about, for instance, in, in Hairspray, one of the things um, Jack wanted was the specific sort of eccentricity of John Waters' point of view. So we went back and looked at this kind of almost Baroque American sensibility where he <laughs> took the ordinary and celebrated it mm -hmm. and kind of excess, together with the demand that the show move seamlessly and have 18 different locations. And the technology, for instance, the light bright wall, which came out of playing with a little light bright set, couldn't have been, the, the notion was to create a kind of low-tech, high-tech thing that didn't have high enough resolution to sort of signal technology, but had the same kind of, you know, early 1960s, we were in love with the space program, we were in love with new materials, so that's sort of magic without losing the innocence. And that's, that's where the challenge is. And then we, you know, we worked with Ken Posner and had 16 million different color options. Mm -hmm. Uh, and actually made models, we made little models with light brights of the pegs in it to try and take it out of the technological realm into the physical. And I got to say, the thing that amazes me most about working in the theater is the amazing passion and the amazing craftsmanship at every single level down to the last stage hand. Um, and it's just it's it, so good. the amount of craft and the amount of care about craft. There was recently an article in the Times about uh, the Milan Furniture Show talking about technology and craftsmanship. And uh, theater seems like one of the most, I mean, I just feel so blessed to collaborate with people who are so passionate about what they do and have such amazing skills and then come together to tell the same story. Uh, and and technology is a filter to do that, but if it becomes the goal, 
then it's sort of distancing. You're there saying, wow, well, that's an interesting, you know, you don't want to say that was an interesting move. You want to say that move, you know, how do I, what was the feeling? It's a handmade art form. Mm. Still, it's one of the few it's left. The last, yeah, it's yeah. the last refuge of the handmade. I mean, where else is an armorer going to get any work these days? <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I, I just want to say a big plug for the stagehands. Our guys, and I've worked around the world, our guys are the best in the world. And they are such professionals at dealing and constantly themselves upgrading their knowledge of these technical matters. With, on shows with moving lights, they are doing brain surgery every night, mm -hmm. fixing those lights and keeping them moving, keeping them working. It's just, yeah. they're terrific. I feel like you're in such great yeah. hands. Yes, we, uh, we were in yeah. previews for two weeks in Seattle, and great stage manager, great crew. I went back to New York, and they said, you know, there seemed to be no glitches. It seems to just be going well. So I went back out opening night. Two minutes into the show, the entire show ground to a halt. Oh. <laughs> Nothing moved, oh. including my back. There was and at that moment, I realized there is human error. You know, the fact of the matter it is it's live theater. Mm -hmm. It's part of the thrill as it's being reproduced each night in front of you. Yes. It's not a mechanized process. Right. That's right. That's right. Oh, so go ahead. I'm sorry, David. I was just going to say that a lighting designer friend of mine and I have a mock argument that we, we like to uh, continue. <laughs> and one time uh, he was saying to me, now, Dave, when is sound design going to become as sophisticated with computers as lighting design has been for, oh, these past... 10 or 15 years. And my f response to him was, well, um, what do you think the status of uh, lighting design, computerized lighting design and theater would be if performers reflected light differently each night depending upon how they were feeling? <laughs> and he went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, now, the, the, another sort of nut and bolt question that comes up from time to time, because we're thinking about, you know, working in the theater. How do we get to work in the theater? You know, what happens when we're working in the theater? And one of the questions that arises for me with designers is, you know, actors can audition for roles. Uh, directors presumably can show their reviews or get people to come in and, and see their work and that sort of thing. But I actually heard Eugene Lee, who is a very talented, very experienced scenic desire, say, uh, designer, say a couple of years ago, that um, he met with the producers of Ragtime, and then after he met with them, they asked him for some designs. Mm -hmm. They asked to see some drawings. Now, this is Eugene Lee, who probably has hundreds of productions that he's designed. That's what the architectural world is like. How do you do that? Do you, do you have to design? To. Well, do, you know, you have, do you have to audition? No, I, I think David. one, well, I think everything's an audition to some extent, but you know, you're, what you're, I think the way to get the conversation is to talk about the project. To do sketches, I think, before you're working on the project is a little bit like name that tune. I mean, if you could design it without really meeting with the director and talking to everyone, then it really wouldn't be much of a challenge if it was just a matter of kind of whipping off a, an image. But I think, you know, our experience has been that, um, that you sit with the director and you sit with the producers and you talk about it, and ultimately it's a leap of faith. It's a belief mm -hmm. that there's a relationship and that there's an understanding of the material and that there's a willingness to work together. Um, so it, it doesn't seem like auditioning is, is the right way to, to sort of think about it. It's more like building a relationship. I once when, you, when you get back, when you go to that first meeting, you've got the production. What's the pecking order? Who has the first say about what's being done? Is there a hierarchy in the room when Absolutely. you have those first design meetings? Absolutely. Those first production meetings? How does that work? How does it work? Adrian? Uh, 
This is when you're not being the producer. This is when you're being the designer. Yes. <laughs> I mean, well, I don't know that there is a pecking order. I mean, the people I like to work with the most are collaborators who, directors, who let, who hire their collaborators, and I guess that's the pecking order, is who hires who, um, who have asked certain people to work with them because they trust them, and then they pretty much leave them alone. I mean, they talk about what they think about the piece and, you know, how it connects to world politics or, or you know, what the story is and why it's important to do it at this point. And then they kind of leave you alone. And then they also know how to put everybody's work together at the end. That's what a really good collaborative director knows how to do. Uh, it's the way I enjoy it. I mean, I don't like working with directors who say, this is my vision and you're here to, to see my vision through. Um, that doesn't interest me much. Maybe there's a shift. Maybe there's a shift that's, that's coming <coughs> with the new generation of directors. You know, it, it, maybe the hierarchies are, are breaking down to some extent. Susie, what's your experience been with that sort of thing? Well, you always work off your director, of course. But I mean, I found as far as the pecking order goes, of course, the set designer you know, we work off of what's their, what are they going for? You know, what's their look? And then, you know, I mean, our, our work is not, what we do, costume design, is not technology driven. Or, you know, I mean, everyone was talking about the, the, you know, the different computers and things like that, but I guarantee you, we make costumes the same way my grandmother <laughs> made costumes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, I would say as far as, you know, as, uh, the pecking order on these things, I mean, you hope that, there doesn't feel like a pecking order, you know? I mean, the wonderful thing is when you feel like you're all together working on something. I mean, that's really, I mean, that's the goal, you know? But when it comes down to it, there definitely is a pecking order. And we've all worked on shows, I mean, hope, well, maybe not, I hope not too many, where <laughs> we have been in those circumstances where maybe we don't all get along, or maybe our vision maybe doesn't meld, which is a learning experience in itself. I mean, I found in some of those experiences where I don't get along with set designer, or, you know, things shift, you know, a bit during, there you find out there's a pecking order I think that quick. when you're in tech, it's more important that there's someone who's, who is in charge. Right. I think when you're in collaborative meetings at the beginning, it is, it's a you more, hope there's more equality. Yeah, I, I, I learned actually working with Jules Fisher as, as an assistant to him, is, and he said this right at the beginning, he said, we do not comment around about anybody else's department. Because if we don't, they have a right to come in about us. <laughs> so in a way, it's, if one's talking, one talks to the director and let them solve, is it because the shoes are red or is it because the color I'm putting on them is red or is it because it's against a gray background? And you know, the, the reasons for any particular visual jarring, we'd all have six different ideas. And I think in terms of hierarchy, I certainly don't ever allow myself to even think about why, why is that wall that color? That's not my business. That's already been decided. My work is to, is to include that red wall and its color in the whole work of the thing. So in that sense, it is a hierarchy. Those decisions were made at a certain level, unless, and then our know, job the is to... Unless Beverly, the, you know, the designer, set designer sitting next to you and, and says, Beverly, is that color of the wall getting in your way? I mean, should we <laughs> tone it down? Correct. Well, in that, in that sense, it, that's the right initiation yeah. of the question, because then the two of us can say, well, no, I sort it's of not. like it, but maybe it, you know, it isn't working for you, mm, and we can mm. figure out what color mm. would be better on it. There's and also the, those wonderful yeah. times where someone else, for, uh, for instance, William Ivy Long on um, Hairspray took the neck away for color idea. 
Uh, and, you know, we, we had the candies. And he came back, and I did not realize there were so many potential Necco wafer combinations. I mean, it's just phenomenal when the collaboration becomes bouncing the ping pong ball back and forth. Mm -hmm. And you're actually exchanging ideas, and the idea gets richer and better yeah. based on yeah, everyone's that's the most take fun. on it. That's the most fun. That's right. the most when fun when surprise. you can have that kind of collaboration. I mean, the way theater is now, it's it's difficult sometimes because it's true. Like sometimes you only meet in text, right. and then you're looking at the set that has somehow changed color. But oh, they didn't get that messenger piece of the wall to you. Uh oh, mm -hmm. right, right. Yeah. sorry. Right. Well, one one of the you things know. that often <laughs> costume designers, I don't see any any color choices. They're supposed to get them to you, but you mm -hmm. never do. Partly because it's the reality of their lives, they've got to <laughs> shop for something. <laughs> so they have a rough idea, and, but there's no way to actually send samples. But once I had the experience creating a show, it was a musical, the music was fairly complete, sitting at my drafting board, actually I started with color. Sometimes I, often I don't, but in that case I sat there and I pulled out all those this and that, this and that, and that, listening to the music. And I got a big fat envelope from the costume designer, and I opened it up, and all the same colors mm. fell out. Mm. I thought, oh, okay. <laughs> well, who, who, off, who gets hired? Who's the first person to get hired? Did, have you ever been hired as a team? Have you been part of a team that got hired? Or the set designer gets hired first, and I'm often asked, you know, who yeah. I think would be a great this or that or the other thing. So I think in, in terms of pecking order, it's the director, set designer. Right. And then after the set designer, I think it costumes and lighting are kind of equal. Mm -hmm. If you look at your playbill, actually, it's it's in a specific, sure. very specific order. Sound way down. And Rui says there's a reason for that. They're very, it's <laughs> in all of our contracts. <laughs> <laughs> the truth be told. Um, sound gets hired by the general manager, unless the director knows you particularly. Um, <coughs> the musical too. director. Mm, it, 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 yes, on, on all on all Just counts. Uh, usually, it's the director. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, uh, unless it's a situation where the show has, there's been several times where the show has actually gotten into tech before anyone realized they needed sound design. <laughs> 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 yep. And those are the calls I hate the most, <laughs> you know, because now I have to come in and I have to make it work. Now really all the money has been mm -hmm. spent. Um, and, uh, you know, if I need to use wireless microphones, they say, well, those are too expensive, but you, it doesn't pay to use bargain wireless microphones, because they are guaranteed to work in rehearsal and not during performance. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so you don't get to charge them extra for coming in at the last minute then, eh? Uh, they've already spent all the money. <laughs> you can try, <laughs> but you know. Um, no, it's, uh, you know, often I, I feel I'm, I'm brought in uh, too late, and it's, a, it's more of an afterthought uh, once they realize you know, how things are, are working. Um, sometimes it's, it just takes the realization of how, the, how they want to use the set to realize, well, if we're going to have this quiet conversation happen way upstage in that room, well, we're going to have to have microphones. And, and then uh, if, if we've waited as, as late as tech, uh, now there's not time to go and install things. And, you know, we, I have uh, people running around in the catwalks during rehearsals making people mad. But <laughs> <laughs> well, we're, we're also trying to, to we, as we think about working in the theater and how to get work in the theater, I, I wonder how you think students today, young designers today, should approach their craft. I mean, it's something that may seem sort of a no-brainer, to you, all of you who are very uh, accomplished in your field, but it's something that, uh, you know, the, the people sitting with us today and the people who will be watching this later want to know. How, how does one get work and how does one keep getting work? We, we talked about that a little bit, but is it, is it, should you go to a training program? Rui, I know you teach, uh, you're saying you mentor. I, 
What I do is uh, I usually uh, pick a book before, speaking specifically about the Williamstown internship, what I do is I'll choose a book for them to read before the summer. And my favorite book to give them is Kitchen, Con Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain, <laughs> which has absolutely nothing to do with lighting. has everything to do with passion and dedication and having something to talk about at those initial design meetings, because it is all about verbal skills, as Adrian was saying. You know, it's all about being able to communicate, particularly with lighting, because you can't show them mm. sketches. You can't show them photos, really, because it doesn't really reflect what the lighting is. It's all about your relationship with the director. It's the director. It's the director, you know, and sort of driving that home and uh, keeping true to your image and, and, your, and your ideas, uh, but ultimately servicing the needs of the play and the director and, um, you know, speaking of that collaboration versus hierarchy, you do need a little bit of hierarchy. You do need an arbiter at some point because we've all done those productions where they all, everyone is in love with everything that you do and you think this can't possibly <laughs> be true. <laughs> and certainly you walk away and it's not necessarily your best, your best work. You need an editor. Yeah. Um, you so explaining agents. all of that. You had agents to get jobs for you? The agents don't Are get jobs. Yeah, yeah. Agents <laughs> don't get jobs. Yeah, yeah. They negotiate well, the contract. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you get yeah. the job? Well, I think there's a couple of levels. If you want to become a designer in the theater, uh, certainly there are great design programs to uh, apply to. Uh, but um, a more philosophical thing I want to say is that the great thing about what we do is that we can use everything in the world. We need to look at paintings, we need to go to movies, we need to see a lot of theater to make sure we're really that interested. Uh, there's music. I mean, th you just need to be very well informed on many, many subjects. Um, so you have to be an interesting person to start with. Mm -hmm. uh, I also think you have to be an artist of some kind, you know, whether that means uh, a poet or a, a writer or someone who knows how to draw. Uh, there needs to be an artistic vision, a strong artistic vision to begin with. Um, and then, you know, I think you then the rest... It. You have to love it. And you have to be really interested in the world and you have to be really interested in how the world looks. And you have to be very interested in your own view of the world and know that the way you see things is very important. That your own individual way of seeing things is, uh, is something to express. You know, I was recently talking to a bunch of architecture students, giving a two-hour talk on architecture, and all they cared about was the last five minutes about hairspray. <laughs> I mean, the sort of love of theater. And what occurred to me is... Tell us, tell us what you mean by the last... Not the last five minutes of the talk. Okay. The, the talk was on a bunch of projects, oh. but at the end I talked about theater, which to a group of architecture students I assume would be interesting but not crucial. And what was fascinating to me is how much they were interested in the fact that that was my personal passion and that it was about crossing boundaries. It was kind of going from one profession to another profession. And it was amazing right. to see these students starting to imagine that, you know, that those boundaries are sort of arbitrary. And if you have a passion for it, and I think it's interesting for theater to be this vital art form that attracts mm -hmm. new people and the people, because it is a, a fantastic um, thing to work in. I was mentioning I went to this to uh, an architecture conference in Venice, which was with you know um, all of the sort of major architects in the world, and I loved it when one of them leaned over to me and said. Can you get house seats to hairspray? <laughs> <laughs> and it's sort of, you know, there, there is a kind of magic, and it's a wonderful thing to do. 
Beverly, I know you've been a mentor and a teacher. How, how do you think that uh, students should be approaching, particularly lighting design students? I mean, they have to get a little box and put some lights in it. You can't do that. <laughs> doesn't work. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Um, I'm also uh, working with the American College Theatre Festival a little oh, bit, so I'm seeing I'm seeing the results of winners and so forth. And one of the one of the things that I'm sort of railing against is is uh, an idea in academic theatre that that you can put a light plot up on the wall and the designer can stand beside it. The way a designer see the designer can stand beside a model, yeah, fine, but you can't see just where the lights are put in the space has nothing to do with how you mix them and how you've made them. And then they're encouraged well, it's to It's a problem with the models, too, sometimes. True. Um, and the, and the, but then they give you these photographs that, thank you, Rui, that have nothing to do with anything <laughs> because, because the physical fact of light affecting the chemistry of film does not reflect what, what you actually see up there. It's an approximation. So, and it's only moment by moment, and lighting moves. So... Um, all the things Adrian said, yes, you have to look how, look how light behaves. Try and figure out why is it doing that? What is it about that? Um, um, if I was, uh, this one game that we all play teaching is to do some very specific painters and say, okay, let's set up this scene. Let, let's get a girl to sit in a chair and now make the light look like the painter. Lighting designers have to do it and do it and do it and do it. Otherwise, uh, the image I use is talking about lighting is like talking about northern Tibetan cooking, <laughs> right? I mean, unless you and I can bite a taste, we have no idea how a discussion of this flavor or that flavor might change. It, it's just, words don't go there. You have to do every bit of lighting that you can get your hands on. And then you have to make sure people see it. And my, my interest is always to focus on the director or the choreographer and to say, what are they, what is this work? How do I reveal it? How do I understand it and let the audience in on it and, and, and therefore have the choreographer and director feel my support and my interest in what they're making? Excellent. Well, that's a good place for us to take a, a brief pause while Isabel Stevenson will tell us about the excellent works of the American Theatre Wing. Before we get back to the American Theatre Wing's work in the theatre seminar on design, I would like to remind you that these seminars are only one of the many year-round programs that the Wing undertakes. You're probably familiar with the American Theatre Wing's Tony Awards, given for achievement of excellence in the Broadway theater. We also have an important grants program, providing aid to off and off-off-Broadway theaters. We have expanded our scholarships to promising students to pursue studies in the theater arts, and we offer a comprehensive guide to careers in the theater for those seriously interested in entering the profession. As a long-established charity dating back from World War I and World War II and our famous stage door canteens, all of our programs are designed to reward and promote excellence in the theater. We just love to introduce young people and their families to theater and the magic it unfolds. We take pride in the work we do, remain grateful to our members and everyone else whose contributions help make possible the dynamic programs of the American Theatre Wing. Our work is so important to the theatre and the community, and we are proud to be a part of this exciting industry. Now let's return to our panel on design and our moderator, Jeffrey Jenkins Jeffrey. But I would like to, before we do that, make a point that this panel and the panelists 
on the stage today make the theater possible. Without them, there would be no theater. So now, Jeffrey, you can take it from there. Thank you, Isabel. Welcome back. Well, when we... Thank you. When we last spoke, we were talking about how to get started as a designer, how we, how we get going, what, what do you do first, what kind of training do you need. And I wanted to start with Susie Benzinger again and ask Susie, how did you get your start as a costume designer? You're, you're the resident costume designer in our little collaboration here today. Well, let's see. Uh, I went to college for it. Where? Uh, Stony Brook on Long Island. And uh, after the second year, my parents received my report card. Uh, my mother said, well, we see you're getting all your A's in your theater courses, and you're not attending your other classes. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, you know, next, next semester, I, you know, I, I think I'll be able to. And she said, you know, your father and I had an idea. How about if you take a year off, and you work in the theater for a year? Then you're gonna, you'll be able to figure out, is this really what you want to do? Is this, you know, your life? So I went to a Studio Arena Theater in Buffalo, which at the time brought in all the shows. They rehearsed them in New York and brought the shows there. Now it's different, but at the time they used to hire the designers in New York and bring the packaged things out, but they were all premieres uh, in Buffalo. And so my first year there, uh, I was the resident assistant. I first assisted Tennessee Williams on one of the first things I ever did there. And then the designers started floating in, and I got to assist Pat Ziprod and Florence Klotz. Hmm. And wow. I mean, it was amazing. The last designer who came in was Jane Greenwood. And uh, Jane said to me, well, what are you doing, darling, you know, after this season is over? And I said, I don't know. I guess I'll go back to school. And uh, she said, well, you know, I'm doing this little production in New York if you have any time. And that's all I had to hear. You know? <laughs> oh, my God. And uh, my parents were not really thrilled with the idea. But uh, Jane invited me to live at her home with uh, her husband, Ben Edwards, the set designer, the most elegant man on the face of the earth. And I lived with them, and I worked with her. And uh, she said, you know, but you've got to get a range if you want to be a designer. And so I worked out of Brooks Van Horn with her. And every time a new designer would come in, she'd make sure I became their assistant. So I was the luckiest girl on the face of the earth because I think now I assisted Raoul Pendubois and Miles White and Pat Ziprod and really all those designers were my teachers. They were my professors. So I got to learn color from Willa Kim and I got to learn, you know, I got to learn uh, line from Miles White. And so I had the most incredible professors on the face of the earth and that's sort of, that's how I learned and that's talk, how I started. Talk about being in the right place mm. at the right time. I was time. in the right place because it, no other costume shop works like that now because in those days designers didn't automatically get assistance. You know, if you were having your clothes made at Brooks Van Horn, then the assistant there was your assistant who was in the costume shop. So I never had to interview for a job. You know, Raoul Pendubois walked in and they said, here, here she is. Luck or not, you know, and so how does, it it, how does it work now? Do you have, do you designers have apprentices? Do you uh, find talented young students? Do people bang on your door and say, I want to run errands? And how does that work? <laughs> Adrian? Yes. Um, students call a lot from universities <coughs> looking for work. Um, sometimes they call and say, I'll volunteer, which is really very smart. Um, and, uh, and then there are just people who are professional assistants who you've hired to do some of the more difficult drafting. 
Rui, that's well, you. You, I guess, probably pick up some help from uh, the interns from that my you pool, yeah, <laughs> or or my mafia, as it. As they <laughs> They've also been called, uh, but I had a, a Williamstown has meant a lot to me over the years, and it gave me a lot of my beginnings, and I feel like giving back a lot uh, to the. To Did you study design in school? I studied at uh, Boston University, and I was um, uh, I had gone to Williamstown. <coughs> As a master electrician, one year. This was uh, Nico Sakharopoulos' last season, mm -hmm. and then the following season. And I, uh, during that year, I was a master electrician, but I also <coughs> assisted um, uh, a director slash lighting designer, Peter Hunt, who was uh, a fantastic lighting designer and a great teacher. Um, so, but I did one show with Peter, and then the following season. Uh, Peter was going to head up uh, part of the, um, he was going to take over for um, Nikos after Nikos passed away as part of a triumvirate. And he called me and we had a long discussion about the light plot and, you know, and at the end I said, well, I'm not really sure if I can come back this summer. You know, I'm graduating, I'm thinking about applying for the uh, New York City Opera internship. Thinking about, I hadn't even actually applied. And uh, Peter said, no, no, I, I really want you to come back. I, what if I gave you a show? And I'm thinking, a show? <laughs> to design a show? And I thought, great, I, it, would be gr it would be an honor to, to design a show in the other stage. And it's a little 97-seat house, and, um, which was uh, where they do the more experimental work. So I, I think about it for 30 seconds, and I say, sure, absolutely, I'd love to do a show. And Sign me up for the summer. I'll be there. I'll do. I'll. I'll be your resident assistant. I show up and I walk into the um, down the hallway, and the call boards are up. And I walk past the call board, and under the first main stage is my name as lighting designer. <laughs> How in the world? <laughs> and that season, I not only ended up doing that show, I ended up doing two other, so three main stage shows that season. Now, David Mester, to be a sound designer, must one first have a huge stereo system in the <laughs> <laughs> a teenager in your bedroom? Uh, who told you about my <laughs> We have our sources. Uh, I, um, yes, I, I, I had a, not a large stereo system, but uh, several tape decks, and I had always been interested in sound. Um, I had initially uh, gone to Lafayette College uh, in Pennsylvania for my freshman year, and um, make a long story short, I, I had pneumonia during that time a little bit so that uh, my, my semester was messed up, and most of my friends were electrical engineers, and they knew that before they got to the school, so I felt like every semester that passed where I didn't define my future, I was limiting my future. Mm. And uh, my parents also suggested that I take some, <laughs> take some time off, as my father put it, if I'm going to help you pay for school. I'd rather you know what you want to get out of it so we can buy what you want. <laughs> and, um, and in that time, I, I realized that uh, I wanted to somehow mix music and communications, because I had uh, both uh, those are very strong drives in me. And um, I started researching schools, and I ended up finding uh, American University in, in DC had a very new audio program. And when I went down there to interview, I met the man who designed the program, and I ended up going there. They had very, very little equipment, but I got an immediate sense from this gentleman that he was going to be 
the, a pr very important person to help me get out of school what I, what I, what I, even, even though I don't know what I need. So uh, I went, they had a new audio technology program there, which uh, was probably only in its third year then. Um, and then walking past uh, his office one day, um, Romeo Sagnan was the designer of the program, a northern Italian, and he says, ah, David, want to go to Europe? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> sure, what's up? And he said, here. And he handed me a piece of paper, and it had David Tudor's name and phone number on it. And I was like, I, I can't call, I know who David Tudor is, I can't <laughs> call him. <laughs> um, but uh, I called, and as it turned out, I happened to reach uh, Mr. Tudor in a 20-minute window when he should not have been home, he should have been in, in Manhattan. And I explained who I was, and they were, he, he said they were looking for a new sound person at the Cunningham Company. And uh, so he invited me to the, to the performances to see, I said, well, what does the job entail? Because uh, I knew the name John Cage, but I didn't know mm. the name Merce Cunningham. I, I think, I think uh, modern dance is a secret art in the United States. Mm. You have to seek it out, and when you do, you can fall in love with it. But you don't get exposed to it until you seek it out. So in any case, I went to the performance, and by the end of the day, they were saying things like, well, you have to watch this console, because if this leg is loose, the transformer's loose. And, uh, um, in f a week and a half later, I was packing for a um, domestic and European tour and finding a sublet for my apartment. <laughs> and I had never, no one had ever paid me to do any kind of sound before. So that's, that's how I. You know, that's interesting. <coughs> uh, there's sort of a through line mm. in what I hear all three of you saying. And one is that, and this is something I think Adrian touched on earlier, and that is being open to new experiences and taking on new experiences as they come. And in the case of each of the three of you, I heard you say yes mm -hmm. to what was presented to you. Not how much am I going to be paid, how is this going to affect my career, how is this going to build my career, but this is an opportunity. Yes. And I, I want to ask David Rockwell <coughs> about how architecture, how being an architect has influenced and has informed your work as a theater designer. You know, when I think back to your um, uh, Rocky Horror Show designs, which were so amazing and inventive with the theater seats that flipped inside and out, and the laboratory that, you know, <laughs> drops from the ceiling. You put the labor back in la laboratory. <laughs> but, you know, how does, how does being an architect influence that? Well, <coughs> my interest in theater actually preceded my interest in architecture in that um, I was sort of brought up in a, my mother was a dancer in, in vaudeville, and my family was very similar in, in sort of function to the family in waiting for Guffman. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the local community productions, we, we lived on the Jersey Shore, and putting together theater, for me, I had a, four brothers, and I found that doing theater was a chance to create this magical alternative reality out of nothing. You'd sort of gone to this auditorium. I actually recently looked at some of the flats that I helped paint as a kid from The King and I, which I remembered being so glorious. <laughs> and they were essentially four by eight canvas with a little gold paint on them. <laughs> you know, the, the memory was of this magical place that was created. And then we moved to uh, Guadalajara, Mexico when I was 10, and I found my love of theater sort of morphed into a love of public spaces and the marketplaces mm -hmm. and the color in Mexico were so inherently theatrical. Uh, and then I um, <coughs> went to architecture school uh, because it seemed like there was a lot of uh, cast-in-place concrete hap happening in Mexico and intense color, and I was interested in it. But I found I always gravitated back towards theater. And uh, second year, I was in New York, and I'd seen Dracula, 
uh, Edward Gorey's Dracula, lit by Roger Morgan. And I was stunned by it. I just thought it was so beautiful. I went to Roger Morgan's studio and uh, called him up and I said, I'd like to work for you and I'll do it for two weeks for free. And if it works out, why don't you hire me? And he was just getting ready to do Crucifer of Blood, I believe. Uh, so I worked for him for two weeks. I fell in love with him. He was the most amazing mentor. And I took a semester off and actually loved theater so much that I decided to transfer to London for a year from Syracuse, which was not a center of great theater at the time, although they had a great theater program. But I really found going to theater was such an uh, important part of engaging me. And over in London, I gravitated towards theater. Finished architecture school, uh, and it was really just fate. I designed a restaurant that became very successful four years out of school. Hmm. Um, I, I wasn't a great employee. I was a better employer. So <laughs> I figured, you know, I did this restaurant. It worked well, and I went into business for myself. And it was about five or six years ago that um, I was having lunch with Jules Fisher, who's a very close friend, and we spent a lot of time together. And I was sketching, because I go to the theater two or three times a week and always sketch and, and design. And we were, he said, you know, David, your, your um, level of interest <coughs> when you talk about theater is so amazing. Why don't you try doing something in the theater? Uh, so in a sense, I think my teachers were, I, I saw the first show I ever saw was uh, Fiddler on the Roof, which is one of the reasons why I'm interested in doing it now. I saw it standing room only. And I've got to say, the unfolding of Boris Aronson's environment was just mesmerizing. And you didn't need to know anything about Anna Tefka for this to tell that story. So I guess my teachers were the great productions that I saw and the kind of analysis. And um, so I just I took a chance. And with Rocky Horror, when I met with Chris Ashley about Rocky Horror, I had never seen the movie. So I rented the movie. Part of living in Mexico for eight years was pop culture was new to me. So it was a new take. <laughs> Uh, and I rented the movie and watched it, and I said, I have no idea what everyone's carrying on about. This is the most <laughs> peculiar thing I've ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to see the show in a movie theater with an audience and realized it's about the interaction. Mm -hmm. uh, and then Chris Ashley spoke to me about, um, you know, the, the real show is about creating yourself in your own image. And for my first theater experience, it seemed like a perfect chance. So um, it, it was. It, it almost sounds as though your uh, architecture work is influenced by theater more than your theater work is influenced by architecture. Is that I, I think that's probably true. We're working on an airport in Vegas, and we're now going to bring in a choreographer <laughs> to deal with you are so lucky. to <laughs> deal with movement and search. Because you know, once you deal with getting the baggage there, <laughs> somehow moving through the space wants to feel wonderful. Now, we've talked a lot about uh, relationships, about the collaborations with the directors. We haven't said much about producers. We'll let that go for now. But what about the relationships that you have with the performers? Now, Susie, certainly you have more interaction <laughs> with the, the we performers. We were just talking about that, yes. Oh, yeah? Uh, I, I wish I had taken my psychology courses. Uh, <laughs> it is. It is probably 90%. I, I hate to say it. It's sometimes it's 90% of the job, depending on the piece. Uh, and it's different. I mean, I was saying I've, I've done some films for Woody Allen, and when you're doing those films, you're getting actors, and you're with them for like an hour, and then they're on camera. I mean, you really have very little time with them. And so in those instances, you're really... You try to get right to the heart of the matter and try to get through their whole, what their image is, and get to the character in a very quick manner. In theater, it's, a, it's of course different because you have much more time. 
But it really is. That's so much of our job. It is so much of our job to make them feel comfortable, to make them feel like they look good, that they can move in something or dance in something. It really is. Well, how does that work for uh, the other design elements? How does that work for you, Adrian? Do, do you do you have an interaction with the performers? With the performers? Do you, how do you? How does not that as much as costume designers mm -hmm. do, which is one of the reasons I'm not a costume designer. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be very good at that. Smart, very but smart. But I did flash on uh, when I did Anne Frank. The cast had been in rehearsal room for how three weeks, four weeks, and they came onto the set for the first time. We were in Boston, and Linda Lavin, who played. Uh, I can't remember the name of the character now. The, the sort of uh, larger-than-life wife who kind of takes over the place, who has the coat, um, mm -hmm. just sat down and started to weep. And Austin Pendleton was in it too, and, and they all just started to, you know, hold on to each other and weep. And I thought, okay, well, I got this right, <laughs> 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 because it was a character that they had been missing in a rehearsal oh, room. Yes. I mean, suddenly they were stuck in the annex. How about you, Dave, David Mester, in, that, in, in sound design? How does, that, uh, how does that come into play with uh, the performers? And you know, Are you dealing with them in a live sense? Yeah. And then you're dealing with them, often, I would think, in some kind of recorded sense. Um, yes, sometimes, too. Now, it's uh, in, in, in the psychology, I would say, 90% <laughs> also um, uh, in, in my field. And it's, uh, it, it still surprises me sometimes. But, no, I, I have to, um, particularly in a situation where uh, performers are going to uh, wear wireless microphones, it's, uh, um, some people get very nervous about it, uh, and I try to, um, to, to, I usually wire people myself so they get a sense that the person who is putting the microphone on them is also, you know, someone really plugged into sure. making, making things sound good for them. Um, not that other people couldn't do it, but there are some artists that, oh no, Dave has to come and do it. No, no, they can't do it. But um, but no, it's it's an, it is important to have a, a, a good relationship with the with the performers, um, particularly in a sense where if if we're also sending sound back to the stage for monitors, making sure that people don't have to ask for more uh, monitor level, but that they're comfortable. So even even when I know the monitors are fine, I'll ask because they need to know that there's a, a voice out there in the dark that's, that is paying attention to mm -hmm. how they're feeling. And if they're more relaxed, they don't need the monitors as much. Because when the performers are uptight and, and uh, still trying to put a piece together and a mistake is made, it's much easier to point at the technology of causing the problem than, you know, sure. personally. So if people are calmed down a bit, it actually flows a little easier. So Well, now, Rui and, and Beverly, you're lighting designers, and you almost have to have the actors there and have to interact with the actors to some extent, the performers to some extent, when you're you know, doing tech and working with that. And I know that there are some designers who don't want to do any tech work without you know, bodies moving in space, which producers sometimes balk at. <laughs> How does that, uh, what is the challenge there for you? Well, bodies moving in space and interacting with the actors, that's, that's the difference. It's, uh, there is comfort in the darkness in the back of the, the house, and I usually do run through the filter of the director in dealing with the actors. But there are moments when you do need to interact, and um, there are specific moments that, that I was just thinking of was, um, doing uh, Mandrake Root with Lynn Redgrave. At the end of the first act, um, she bears 
herself from the waist up. And it's a very particular moment and the lighting is very key and we have many, we had many, many discussions about the angle and exactly how much we see, what we don't see, what the revealing is and what the emotion is and um, so we had many, many discussions. We did the production at the Long Wharf in New Haven and it was, and it was Th that last final moment was successful. We did the production then in, uh, at the San Jose Rep in um, California, and we got to that moment. It was s essentially a remount, so the show was in the, in the computer, and we ran to that moment, and we stopped, and we said, are we ready to do it? And we said, yes, we're ready, so we continued. She took her jacket off, and nothing happened. The lights are on, there's no blackout, <laughs> nothing happened. And the stage manager was new and yeah. thought that she didn't have to call the final blackout. <laughs> so she finally stood out there and she waited and waited and waited and turned around to us and said, are you going to turn the lights off? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there is interaction. <laughs> Where do you get the fabrics for costume today? Where do you get the fabric for costume? We get the fabrics pretty much in the same places <coughs> that have been in New York for like uh, for so like many Brooks years. Like Brooks Brothers and we g we go to um, you know the fabrics. We go to like B and J. Mm -hmm. We go to Art Max. We go to um, you know the same stores that have existed for uh, and a lot of these stores. They're the, s the grandsons are now running them. There's generations of families there. Uh, it's changing a little bit because now there's a lot of um, Egyptians are now moving in and Indians moving into the fabric business. It used to be very much um, uh, a different sort of business uh, then. Do they specialize in fabrics for the theater or is it? No, there are very few of those companies left mm -hmm. that specialize in, because I don't know what theater fabrics are anymore. <laughs> you know, I mean it used <laughs> to be, yeah. when, when I first came, you know, it was, it was the sort of fabric that you saw in kids' dance recitals. You know, lots of fluorescent tones and satins and things like that, you know. But I think um, we go to the same fabric stores that everyone else does. We always wish we'd get a discount because we buy a lot. Of we don't. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it costs us more. They see us coming and, you know, <laughs> it costs us more. But Well, you know, cost is something that w we should talk about for a moment or two because uh, if you want to do a Broadway musical, 10 million bucks to start with, probably. Um, I'm guessing that Frog and Toad is a lot less than that. It was a lot less than that, and it's because we did it uh, in a great regional theater first, and sure. moved the entire physical production from Minneapolis. And children's so theater we got in a three million dollar set for two hundred thousand dollars, which is really the way to do it at this point. Wow, that's an amazing figure. Now, how does uh, how do costs affect? The way you do I'd things. I'd like, to, I'd like to tie in with something we talked about before and about the actors too, because increasingly, I don't know really if you've run into this. There's gotten to be a fantasy out there that there's a way of, of eliminating the tech, or oh, it isn't nice for the actors to stand there. It's such hard work. Can't we do <laughs> just do this on the bare stage? Of course, good actors know how to use that time. They they're handling their props. They're, the, the director is finally leaving them alone because he's worried about the light cues, so they <laughs> have a chance to work. Um, but there's pressure out there to do what's called pre-techs. Yeah, pre-techs? Uh, yeah, yeah. Or dry and, tech. And yeah. dry, dry tech. tech. Dry tech used to happen after the cues were written and we could just go through mm. things quickly. But now the pre-tech idea, I've had stage managers say, well, could you put the cues in my book the weekend before the tech? And I say, well, <laughs> 
uh, you probably know where Q1 is going to happen, <laughs> and you probably know where the blackouts are going to happen. So, but in between, uh, I don't know. Yeah, we're going to create it as we go along. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and and one needs to, especially the lighting designers, have to paint in the context. There's pressure, technological pressure, to to think it all up in your bedroom. You know, and bring it in on a disc and slip it into the machine. No, no. And and the way you get actors to understand the process is to talk about how beautiful they're going to be if they give you a chance to help to, to, to do that for them. And, uh, but, but there's a lot of current pressure to, to and it be, it's because of time, which always equals money, is can we do this some way without this process? And, uh, and most shows have to tour. Yes. In order to be economically viable, right. and uh, the other thing we all know that like Angels in America yeah. never made its money back until it'd been on tour for it's quite a while. It's not understood that when you take a show from one theater to another, adjustments have to be made. Mm -hmm. Producers think you just plug it in <laughs> and it plays like a video, <laughs> and every space yeah, is different. different. And yeah. how much of the cost labor is? Mm -hmm. And when you you know mm -hmm. one of the things that you talked about in, in materials is one way I guess to deal with budget is find materials from different sources. Um, we, we were pressured on the hair curtain in Hairspray, which is seven miles of red rubber tubing, to find an inexpensive material that would do that, and we found it. What we didn't expect is a lighting designer was then going to say, well, is it going to melt together when it's up in the, you mm. know, so we had to test that. But by not going to necessarily the first instinct about what the material would be, but trying to do some research on inexpensive materials, you can get the effect without that particular cost. I think the worst problem with finances in the theater now is that all of us, in order to survive, have to do too many projects. And it's one of the reasons why mm -hmm. we never get into a room together. And it would just be so wonderful if you did three things a year. I mean, right. the results would be extraordinary. Well, you know, we could continue this conversation for hours. I'd like to do that. <laughs> but unfortunately, we've run out of time for this program. Uh, this has been the American Theater Wing's Working in the Theater Seminar, coming to you from the Graduate Center of City University at New York. Thank you for joining us.